guys. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you today. A um, couple of quick announcements to add to what Kenny's already shared. Uh, the Young at Heart have their luncheon this coming Tuesday, um, and we've got plenty of food ordered. If you didn't get the chance to sign up or you have somebody that you'd like to bring along as well, um, they are more than welcome. I think that uh, Miss Mary Francis said that folks were going to provide desserts and maybe a side salad. Nope. Just ask Miss Mary Francis afterwards. She'll, tell, she'll square you up. Um, also, um, after church today, uh, Kenny mentioned about FCA cooking for the football team uh, for North Coney High School. They are doing one of those cookings today. And so that's happening down here in our gym kitchen um, from 2 o'clock to about 5 o'clock. And Walt is heading that up. And so if you just want to come and help chop up bread and uh, cook some eggs, that sort of thing, you're welcome to do that. We have a group of folks that are going to be there. I'm sure they'd be happy to have you know, more hands the, the better. Um, have you along. So that's from 2 o'clock, 5 o'clock down in the gym kitchen. Um, we've been in a series looking at the book of Ecclesiastes written by King Solomon, son of David. Um, we've heard Solomon uh, grouse about life and be sour about life. Um, today he kind of begins to come out of that a little bit, um, and really over the last couple of chapters. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to sharing some of that with you. Um, next week, we're going to actually wrap up our series on Ecclesiastes because the following week starts the Christmas season. Can you believe that? So just so you know, that's kind of where we're going. Um, today, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Uh, one of the questions that I have been asked consistently over and over again as we've been going through the series is, how come Solomon loses it? I mean, I thought he was supposed to be this really wise man. Right? I thought he was supposed to have all this wisdom. I thought he would, I mean, of all people in the world, how could the wisest man in the world do act so foolishly? And yet that's the story. And so we'll get into that question a little bit today from Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 12 through 17, kind of a little bit of a chunk of scripture there. Uh, but we're up to it, right? Okay, let's stand and read together Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 12 through 17. Here we go. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. You may be seated. Sounds a little bit proverbial, doesn't it? So he's getting back to some wise words. That's what we're going to run into today. In fact, Solomon, with these wise words, paints a portrait of foolishness. He says, here's what a foolish person does. Here's how a foolish person acts. Here's what a foolish person thinks. Uh, for example, he says, verse 14, a fool multiplies words. That is, a foolish person does not know when to stop talking. Back in verse 12, the lips of a fool consume him. In, words, or in other words, he loves to listen to himself talk. He's consumed with his own opinions. Verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. That is, when he starts talking, it's just nonsense. And by the time he gets done talking, when he gets to the end of his talk, the guy is bloody insane. His heart and his mind have turned into madness, evil madness. Now, I've highlighted for you a few words that appear in these three verses. Uh, the words uh, well, some, what are some of the words? Talk, uh, lips, mouth, words, all these sorts of things. That, so all these verses, there's a common theme that runs through them, and it has to do with foolish talk. Uh, jump to verse 15. 
Solomon gives us a second way that foolishness manifests itself. So if the first way is through the mouth, the second way is through what he calls a foolish work ethic. Verse 15, the toil of the work that one fool does, or that a fool does, wearies him. Basically, he's saying that fools, people who work foolishly, are inefficient. They're fatigued way too early uh, after doing some work. Um, He says in verses 9 and 10, he gives us some examples of this kind of inefficiency. He writes back in verse 9, he who quarries stones, we'd call that person a mason. And he says, he who chops logs, uh, that we'd call that person a lumberjack. And what is the tool that a mason uses? What is the tool that a lumberjack would use, especially back in their day? It would have been the iron head of an axe. And so he says that that iron head of an axe, verse 10, if the iron is blunt, the one who does not stop to sharpen it, that mason or that lumberjack must use more strength. In other words, they're going to wear themselves out because they're operating with a blunt instrument that is not uh, prepared to do that work. Wisdom, he says, if they follow the way of wisdom by sharpening that blade, wisdom will help them to succeed. A third way that foolishness manifests itself is via destructive leadership. When you have a leader who is Um, a fool or acting foolishly, this is the kind of behavior that they engage in. Verses 16 and 17. Look at verse 16. He says, woe to you, O land. That is bad news for your country. Sorry, folks. He says, if your leader is a child, that is some little pup, or if your leader or leader princes feast in the morning. Now, why why would princes be feasting in the morning? Because they've been up all night, right? Partying. They've been carrying on all through the evening. Woe to your land if that's the kind of ruler that you got. Verse 17, in contrast, but happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. That is, when your king carries himself with poise and grace, the kind that we would expect to hear or see from royalty. And your princes feast not in the morning, but at the proper time, at dinner time. And they do so for strength and not for drunkenness. All right, I got a slide for you here, and this shows as a diagram that summarizes the ways that foolishness manifests itself. The list is not intended to be exhaustive, it's just a sample, uh, if you would, of foolish activities. These are the kinds of activities that foolish people will engage in, these are the kinds of behaviors and the kind of thinking that we would expect. Um, what's interesting is, as you examine the list, the list appears to be describing Solomon. If you started Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and worked your way to chapter 10, you realize all of these things are what Solomon's been doing. It's how he's been acting. He was the ruler, probably along with his sons, the princes, who were staying up all night and eating breakfast or eating dinner at breakfast time, uh, partying all night. Solomon was the ignoble king who didn't carry himself with poison grace and who brought shame to the throne of his father David. Solomon was the one who was driven to madness by the sound of his own voice. Solomon was the one who was self-consumed and would not consider any other opinions but his own. His mouth was the one that was always running, and his ears were the ones that were always plugged. Basically, what we have here in these verses is not just a portrait of foolishness, but it is a self-portrait. Solomon is describing, he's drawing, he's giving us wisdom and saying, don't act like this, I know a lot about it. Now remember, this is not Solomon's private journal something that he never intended to be read by anyone else, Solomon knew that this stuff was going to be published. Right? He knew that his constituents, he knew that his subjects were going to get to read this stuff. He intended that to be the case. And so this self-portrait functions not only as a teaching tool on foolishness, but it also functions as a confession. A confession. The foolishness that's been going on at the palace for some years perhaps has uh, affected and been felt by the subjects in the street. Solomon is finally beginning to own 
his stuff. Now, part of what makes this so fascinating is that when I look at the book of Proverbs, which is also written by Solomon, I hear this same guy warn his readers over and over and over again not to act foolishly. Has that, did, that, did that occur to you, right, as we've been reading through this stuff? For example, Solomon writes in Proverbs 12 and verse 15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. In other words, the fool is not consumed by his own talk, by his, what's coming out of his mouth. Proverbs 13 and verse 16, Every prudent man, the guy who works wisely, acts with knowledge. That is, he sits down, he sharpens his axe before he goes to work, but the fool, he um, flaunts his folly. Proverbs 14 and verse 16, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. They stay up all night partying. Proverbs 18 and verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Friends, I could go on and on and on. The book of Proverbs uses the word fool, foolishness, and folly. Folly is the action of fools 92 times over the course of 31 chapters. So much of Proverbs is about saying, don't act like this. With the book of Proverbs, Solomon is teaching his people to walk in the way of wisdom and warning them to avoid the way of folly. What does that mean? It means that the writer of Ecclesiastes, who admittedly walked in the way of fools, did not follow his own advice. Solomon knew the right thing to do, yet he did the wrong thing, the foolish thing, Anyway, all right, well, those are some observations that I've made here and shared with you from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, which means that's our treatment of that text. So we're going to stop here and ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Um, I have been asked more than once the last couple of weeks, how does a man who was as wise as Solomon behave so foolishly? How does he blunder so badly? Um, you would think with all of his wisdom that Solomon would have seen these things coming. He would have seen these potholes. He would have seen these missteps and these pitfalls, and he wouldn't have stepped in them, and yet he does. Anyway, how does the guy who wrote the book of Proverbs write the book of Ecclesiastes? You ever wondered that? Remember, Solomon's wisdom was world-renowned. The queen of Sheba, for example, came to visit him one day. And she sat down with him, and 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 6 captures this. And after spending a couple hours talking with him, here's her comment. She says, I didn't believe the reports about your wisdom. People told me that it was incredible, but until I came and my own eyes had seen it, behold, half of what was told me, half of the greatness of your wisdom was not even told to me. In other words, the descriptions that people gave me didn't even come close to the reality of your wisdom. Didn't even, didn't even touch it. You will far surpass the reports that I heard. And yet here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 with this gifted wise king confessing that he has acted contrary to his own wisdom. Again, how does that happen? Well, a couple of thoughts along those lines. First, Flip over in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 14. These are the words of David, Solomon's father. David writes Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, when I was growing up and I read those words, they were incredibly encouraging for me. Because as I was driving, traveling through school and I was trying to follow the Lord, 
uh, my friends knew that I followed the Lord. They knew that I read the Bible. They knew, they knew that I believed in this all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe, and that there was stuff in the Bible that really wasn't something that they agreed with or thought was true. And they wondered, well, how can you, Mr. Ignoramus, Mr. Religious Nut, believe in any of that stuff? And as they were pressing me and giving me a hard time and discouraging, trying to discourage me in my faith, I would just quote under my breath Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool said in his heart that there is no God, right? Perhaps you did the same. So that's the part of the verse that I remember. But if we keep reading, we discover this verse has a lot more to offer than just helping us brush back the skeptic. David continues in verse 1. They are corrupt. That is, the fool is corrupt. They do abominable deeds. And then get this, he says, there is none who does good. Now, you would think that that's a qualifying statement of the fool. There is none, none, no fool who does good. But if we keep reading in verses 2 and verses 3, the context begins to enlarge who he's talking about here, who none, what, he, what he means by none doing good. He says in verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. And some of your translations say who act wisely, who seek after God. And what does God find? Verse 3, it is not just the ones who have denied God's existence, who have turned aside from him, but they have all turned aside. All of humanity, together as a whole, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, apparently David had instructed his son, had taught Solomon this concept of the sinfulness of humanity, of this universal problem of sin, because Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul picked up on this same concept in his letter to the Romans. He writes in Romans chapter 3, quoting Psalm chapter 14. He writes Romans 3 and verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 12, all, still quoting here, have turned aside together as a whole. Humanity has become worthless or has become corrupt. None does good, not even one. And then Paul puts it in his own words a little bit later in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 where he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does this tell us? It tells us that having the right answers, maybe even being super smart, is no guarantee that you won't walk in the way of folly. I remember reading an article in a paper, a couple, or local paper a couple of years ago about a local UGA professor who responded to some ads for companionship. The ads were fake. It was a sting operation. But this seasoned, brilliant, distinguished professor responded to the ad and wound up in jail in a lot of hot water. Friends, being smart and having all the right answers even knowing the way of wisdom does not make us impervious to the foolishness of sin. You say, well, Gordon, doesn't give me a lot of hope. <laughs> Help me out here a little bit. I mean, if Solomon, with all of his wisdom, still landed in all of his folly, what's to prevent me from doing the same thing? I mean, help me out here. Um, how do we protect ourselves against folly? If wisdom won't do it, or wisdom alone, then what will? Uh, because I really don't want to end up like that college professor. And I really don't want the story of my life to read like the book of Ecclesiastes. So how do I protect myself against sin? Two thoughts. First, we have to understand where sin comes from. That is, where does this drive 
to do the wrong thing originate? Flip back with me again to 1 Kings chapter 11, looking again at the life of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4 tells us where things started to go awry. When Solomon was old, it reads, that is not long before he wrote Ecclesiastes, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Solomon's exposure was not a lack of wisdom. It wasn't a lack of self-control. His exposure was his heart. You see, there is within each and every one of us, theologians tell us, a sinful nature. That is a bent toward sin. You don't have to teach three-year-olds to lie. Some of you have been school teachers, and you're like, yeah, I can definitely attest to that. You have children in your house, you're like, yeah, I can definitely attest to that. You don't have to teach three-year-olds to whine. You don't have to teach three-year-olds to, to not share. Uh, they just That comes naturally to them. It's that sinful nature within each of us. So what became of Solomon started in his heart. The prophet Jeremiah puts it this way, Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah is speaking to the sinful nature that lies within each and every one of us. It's the human condition. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 12 and verse 34, from the mouth the heart speaks. In other words, mouth problems. It's really a heart problem. Which is why Solomon advised, Proverbs 4 and verse 23, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. So that's the root, if you would, of the problem. The problem is not a lack of wisdom. The problem is not a lack of patience. The problem is not a lack of self-control or lack of anything. The problem is the heart of man, which is deceitful above all else. Our natural sinful bent towards sin. The solution to bringing that sinful nature under control comes to us from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. You can follow along on the screen, or if you want to, you can jump, jump over there. Paul writes these words, verse 16, Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Wow, what a verse. What a verse. When we are walking step in step with the Spirit of God, Paul says, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that when we are in tune with the Spirit of God, that we are equipped, that we are able to overcome sin. Paul knows something. He knows that the heart of man is deceitful above all else. He knows that we cannot overcome sin with human weapons and human strength or even human wisdom. The only way to beat back the fallen human sinful nature is with the Spirit of God. Fortunately, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of each and every one of you. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple? A temple is a place where God dwells. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God? whom you have from God. This was one of the great promises of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. God said, I will put my law within them and I will write my law on their hearts. Back to Galatians 5 and verse 16. So a life that is led by the Spirit of God is one that does not live in subjection to the natural bent towards sin that lies within each of us. 
all of the Bible study, all of the Wednesday night Bible studies that we do, all the home groups that we're a part of, all the small groups that we participate in, Sunday morning worship, singing praises to God, hearing God's word taught and preached, all the praying that we do, our daily devotions, all of that is designed to help us to more intimately, to, be, to live more intimately, more in tune with the Holy Spirit of God within, a, within us so that we are not in bondage to the sinful nature that runs deep within the human heart. Again, we don't do all the things that we do. We don't show up here and have Christian fellowship together as though the Christian fellowship of itself is going to beat back the sinful nature. All of those Christian fellowship, all of those Bible studies, all of that prayer is, again, designed to draw us into a more intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God so that we can walk step in step with the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Friends, the point is, not a one of us has the power or the self-discipline or enough wisdom to avoid the pitfalls of sin. It is in our nature to want to do that. But through the power of God, we can overcome. Last thought. The problem that so many of us face is that we start the Christian life living by faith. Let me explain. We lean and we trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross as our means for having our sins forgiven. We invite Jesus into our life. We go to the waters of baptism. We invite him in. We lean and we trust in the work that he accomplished on the cross as the means for what establishes, reestablishes that relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. When we come to the end of our life, so we live, we, we, we begin the Christian life by faith, putting our faith in what Jesus did. We end the Christian life the same way. We come to the end of our life and we recognize that, you know, things are fading and we're about ready to come to the end and go on to glory. And as we do, we come to it in faith. Again, trusting in, leaning upon the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross for our sins. But in between the start of the Christian life and the end of the Christian life, we find ourselves living not by faith, but by works. So we start by faith, we end by faith, but we live the thing out in the middle by works. And that's not the way God designed this at all. That is, we try to live the Christian life by our own power and our own strength by gutting it out. Friends, that's the wrong way to live the Christian life. It started by faith, leaning and trusting on the power of God to save us. It will end with us leaning and trusting on the power of God to save us just the same. It needs to be lived by us leaning and trusting on the power of God to save us. We cannot do this by ourselves, by our own strength. We need to be leaning and trusting on him. Friends, we need to come to terms with the fact that we are wholly ill-equipped to live the Christian life successfully. But through the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, the power of God within us, our life story, the portrait of our lives, can be wisdom personified rather than foolishness manifested. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for reminding us today of how you want us to live this thing called the Christian life. It is to be lived by your power, by your strength, by your might. And Lord, the power is there. 
And it is more powerful than the powers and principalities and rulers in the darkness of this world that we fight in war against. Yours is the victory, and so it can be ours as well. Lord, in the quiet moments of communion this morning, as we look toward these elements representing your broken body and your shed blood, may we again commit ourselves to want to live a life of wisdom, a life of wisdom personified, but that, Lord, we are going to commit ourselves to doing it by your power, by your strength. You did not leave us alone. You left for us a comforter, one who would dwell within. You have written your laws on our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. We give you these quiet moments. Holy Spirit, speak and minister, guide and direct. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.